Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Jeff Worsberg from Norton Rose Fulbright, and my guest today is my friend, the founding and managing partner of Athene Law, Felicia C. Felicia, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have a phenomenal conversation about Medicaid managed care, but why don't we start by just you introducing yourself and giving a little bit about your background. Sure, I'm happy to do that. First of all, I want to say how proud I am that you classify me as one of your friends. I feel like that should definitely go on my LinkedIn profile. But to give you a little bit of background about myself, I became active in healthcare back in the Clinton administration when they were doing uh, changes to welfare reform and ended up getting a master's in public health and have been really into health policy ever since. So after my master's and a stint at the federal government, ended up going to law school and working at a healthcare law firm, doing provider-side representation. And while I haven't stayed with the same firm, I've continued that as an active part of my practice. And specifically with respect to Medicaid, that was a big part of what I got interested in back in the 90s and did at the federal government and continue to be interested in now. So Felicia, I think you and I have a shared love of the Medicaid program. And I always like to say that Part of that is because it's, it's high impact. It's very meaningful and it truly does change and improve the lives of, of those that are part of the program and benefit from it. Talk a little bit about how you came to the program and why you find it so interesting. Sure. So in the 90s, I mentioned welfare reform. There was a lot of questions about the extent to which immigrants should be able to access health care benefits under the public charge law, but Medicaid and Medicare specific. And I spent a lot of time doing community organizing to really fight for the right of immigrants to qualify for Medicaid, especially you might come to the country and fall upon hard times. And the idea of going without health care coverage is daunting and really just bad for public health, right? We've seen this a lot with COVID, um, but infectious diseases don't care whether you're insured or not. And so ensuring access to health care became very important. And when I was working for the federal government, a lot of what we did was work on the expansion of the Children's Health Insurance Program and really working to expand coverage. But as I became a practicing lawyer, one of the things I realized was that having a card meant very little if healthcare providers weren't willing to see you because it was too difficult to enroll into Medicaid or the rules were too arcane or the payment rates were so low that it didn't make business sense to participate in Medicaid because you were just losing too much money on that that area of business. And so I changed sort of the area of interest that I had between and from just expanding coverage to making sure that that coverage was meaningful and doing a lot of work on the provider side to really fight for more equitable Medicaid policies. Well, I love that that personal connection and the passion behind all that. And I think there's a lot for us to, to unpack, but why don't we start with some of the basics about Medicaid and in particular Medicaid managed care, because I think most people don't realize how integral in 2023, managed care is in the provision of Medicaid. And so if I could ask you for those listeners who maybe are newer to health law and don't have familiarity with the program, could you give a little background on both the Medicaid program as well as managed care's role in it? Sure, of course. The 
Medicaid Act was established by Congress in the 1960s. And part of that was to create a safety net for sort of the sickest and lowest socioeconomic individuals in the country. It was established as a state and federal partnership with states putting up at most 50% of the costs of Medicaid expenditures, which would then be met with federal matching funds. In order to access those federal matching funds, states have to get approval from the federal government, from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for their state plans, which set forth coverage, eligibility, and payment policies for each Medicaid program. Historically, all of the Medicaid programs in the country were operated on a fee-for-service model, which meant that the states were contracting with providers and paying for services on their own, much like the Medicare fee-for-service program. But what has happened over time is you've had states seek to contract with primarily private entities, although there are definitely some models where you have public entities acting as the intermediary as managed care plans uh, to coordinate benefits and you know really intended to coordinate care and ultimately stand in the role to pay providers. For the most part, it's anticipated that those Plans will contract with healthcare providers, although there are obvious protections for beneficiaries uh, where there's mandatory coverage of emergency services. This really transformed the face of Medicaid in the country. In 2016, there's, there was a comprehensive Medicaid managed care rule that was adopted by CMS that acknowledged that now about 80% of the Medicaid beneficiaries in the country are covered by managed care programs. There are some states like Arizona, where basically the entire Medicaid program is operated through managed care. Even California, we had already maxed out in a lot of ways on managed care, where we were at about 85%. But with some changes in our program now, we're anticipating that with the implementation of more populations in our managed care program, we'll be looking at about 90% of Medi-Cal beneficiaries being enrolled in managed care programs. So this is really the new face of Medicaid in this country. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Arizona, which was the last state to actually have a Medicaid program. It's interesting now that they have Medicaid so ingrained in the managed care area. Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned comprehensive managed care. I I think people don't realize that Medicaid is delivered in often cases and financed through various waiver programs, and that there are different components sometimes that are carved in or carved out of managed care. Could could you talk a little bit about that? Of course. So in general, states operate three different forms of, actually I say three, it might be four. So you have prepaid inpatient health plans. Those are ones that are typically not paid on a capitation basis, but the scope of coverage is focused typically around inpatient services. Um, One model that we see often that are prepaid inpatient health plans are mental health plans. Then you have prepaid ambulatory health plans, which also can be risk or non-risk-based payments, but those are typically networks that are not focused on as much on facility services. One, one of those models that we see sometimes around, for example, AIDS services, so wraparound services for AIDS patients or specific populations like that. And then a third category are MCOs, managed care organizations. Those are typically comprehensive risk-based contracts where the state pays those MCOs based on a capitation rate. And thus, usually the model that we see 
most often. But for example, I know for in some states, you'll see PHPs that cover, for example, medical transportation. And in other states, they have models for ground medical transportation that's actually a broker, which is different because there's less risk involved. So there are different models for different kinds of things, but usually for these kinds of managed care models, it is the contractor that ultimately holds the financial responsibility for paying the claims. Let's let's talk about what's hot at the moment in, in Medicaid managed care. What what are some issues that you feel like are hot topics? Let's let's say I'm going to a party and I really want to have interesting conversation. What should I talk about with regard to Medicaid managed care? First of all, I'd probably recommend you not talk about Medicaid managed care for, if you're going to a party. Maybe we go to very can... different parties. <laughs> but I think there are some really interesting things going on in Medicaid managed care. One of the things that I think we're going to see continued, well, first of all, there's going to be a new rule coming out in April is what the word on the street is. And so we're all looking out at what's going to change. One of the areas that there's been a lot of movement has been around directed payments, which is, you know, in some states, the states, rather than putting up state share from their own state general funds, they will use um, other kinds of payment mechanisms like intergovernmental transfers or provider taxes to raise additional state funds to draw down federal match. And it's been complex how states are permitted to channel some of those additional payments back to providers through um, directed payments or supplemental payments. In the 2016 rule, CMS decided that they were going to phase out supplemental payments. So supplemental payments are typically payments that are not tied to specific services during that managed care rating period and, and require that those payments be transitioned in a way where the states are directing the plans how much to pay for specified services during a specific time period that are tied to specific services. I think we're going to see some additional changes around that, especially as CMS gets a little bit more bullish in terms of how they're going to uh, apply the rules around where is situations where providers are paying the state share of um, Medicaid reimbursements. I think we're going to continue to see a lot of movement around emergency services claims disputes and the extent to which uh, plans are, are obligated to pay for those and the rates that they have to pay. I also think we'll see some movement around capitation. There was a big move towards transparency in the 2016 rule. A lot of debate about what would be included and excluded from the calculation of capitation rates. And I think with more states moving to risk-adjusted areas, I think there's going to be continued question about the extent to which the risk, the conditions that each patient has are accurately reported through encounter data so that the, the states are properly adjusting the capitation rates paid to plans. Uh, those would be some of the top hot topics that I can think of off the top of my head. Those are great ones. One of the things that I find very interesting about Medicaid managed care is the way in which social determinants of health, which obviously is a you know, hot, hot topic, hot area in, in health law, but can be addressed through, through managed care and in particular, uh, the use of in, in lieu of services. Could you talk a little bit about what those are and perhaps some of the, the innovative ways in which Medicaid is addressing social determinants? Sure. I'm the most familiar with California's program, but we just had our most recent 
1115 and 1915B waiver approved in December of 21. And with that, what California embarked upon was a program, really two new programs. One was enhanced care, care management, which is not an in lieu of services program, but it was really to provide an additional benefit for some of those harder to reach populations that may or may not be higher utilizers to really try to provide additional case management for them so that the hope would be that with additional uh, medical management of their care, we can reduce more expensive institutional care for those individuals. And that's something that's already been implemented here. I think there's a lot of use of promotoras, uh, which are sort of neighborhood individuals who can work with, in, you know, in the communities where these individuals are to really try to encourage better health outcomes. The other one is community supports in California, which is the name that we've given our in lieu of services program. You know, in lieu of services, are services that are not necessarily benefits, but that states are utilizing uh, in lieu of covered benefits. And at least in California's case, a lot of that tends to be in lieu of inpatient services or skilled nursing services, because those are two of the most expensive things that Medicaid programs pay for. So what we see, what the way we've implemented it here is that the plans get to choose from a menu of options. They don't have to offer any, and none of those uh, in lieu of services can be imposed on any individual beneficiary. So they can still choose to opt out. But we are seeing all sorts of things like nutritional delivery of meals, helping individuals who want to stay at home, helping them put in ramps and additional things that may not be covered under traditional Medicaid in order for them to be able to live at home for longer. Recently, we've seen, while there's already a home housing deposit community support in California, we're also looking at trying to cover six months of rent. And the idea is that this keeps individuals from having to use respite care and other healthcare services. And so really trying to move Medicaid programs from just being a traditional healthcare provider program to more of, you know, a biopsychosocial model of health. Um, there are definitely hiccups along the way. You know, you're contracting with folks who aren't enrolled in the same way as they might be for a traditional Medicaid program. You're coming up with payment methodologies that are wildly different, you know, and, and so it really is making changes to the way that we think about health and healthcare. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting when we go about five years into this kind of model, especially with so many cities across the country having significant issues with homelessness. It'll be interesting to see the extent to which this can make an impact on some of those issues. You know, to some of those, those great points, Felicia, I think one of the talking points you often hear about Medicaid is that it, it's crummy coverage. Could you dispel that that notion? And, and for those who, when confronted with that point at cocktail parties like I like to attend where you talk about these issues. What's the response to that? Explain why people think that and the reality. Jeff, I think that's a really difficult question to answer. A lot of these Medicaid programs are historically underfunded. And when states have budget crises, they're often the first 
program to be cut because they are so expensive. But at the same time, it does create a safety net for a lot of individuals. Uh, while you know you might be far from even having 50% of the doctors in a state participating in the program, usually, from my experience, 100% of the hospitals that have emergency rooms do participate. And so if nothing else, there is coverage in the emergency department. And I think it's important to mention that, and we haven't talked about it, that for Medicaid services, there's generally low, if any, co-pays required. And that's because these are some of the lowest socioeconomic status individuals in our society. And so for them, being able to go to the emergency room and not even have a copay, while it's unfortunate that more oftentimes than not that the emergency room becomes the only regular source of care. It is a source of care, and these individuals are able to get higher acuity services when they need it. I would contrast that with individuals who are just above the Medicaid eligibility line, and I was really in a difficult situation where I helped a friend of mine who works two part-time minimum wage jobs and therefore doesn't get any healthcare coverage from either of those jobs. And this is a person who's working 50 hours a week. I was able to help him sign up for an exchange product in his state, but it was really difficult because when we did that, this is somebody who can't afford a premium of over, he had, his options were a, a bronze plan at $3 a month. And the next level silver plan was something like $200 a month. And it wasn't realistic for him to be able to pay $200 a month. So he selected the bronze plan, knowing that he's going to have a hefty deductible if anything ever happens to him, but that's all that he can afford. So if he has a situation where he has any significant disease or an accident and he needs to go to an emergency room, the unfortunate reality is that that could very likely bankrupt him because he won't be able to pay that deductible. Hopefully he'll be able to get charity care because hopefully the hospital FAP will kick in, but it's still scary to think about. And so when we're talking about the level of coverage provided by Medicaid, it does tend to be a fairly comprehensive coverage and at a very low cost. I'll also add that for children and half of California's children, I don't know about the numbers around the country, but half of California's children are covered by Medicaid. The, the EPSDT, which is the early periodic screening, diagnosis, and testing program, um, does provide almost all of the coverage they need in or, in, until I believe they're 21 for a lot of what you know, children need to grow up in a healthy way. And so there is very, very broad coverage for those kinds of services, which I think is important when we're looking at some of the most vulnerable pockets of our society. You know, Felicia, you've raised so many interesting issues, including churn and the challenges with, with churn in the program. Obviously, there are concerns for dual eligible individuals. In theory, the Affordable Care Act is supposed to help with that churn, but, but to your point, oftentimes the coverage on the exchange while affordable for the premium really may act as a high deductible plan for the individual or, or at times act as, as a barrier because of some of those out-of-pocket costs. I'm afraid we'll have to save some of those, those issues for another day. What I wanted to close with though is you've had such an interesting career and what I think in particular is so interesting and admirable about it is that you found this area, as you discussed at the outset, outset that you were passionate about, and you've made a career of that and been, been able to make a difference 
along the way. And so I was hoping you could close by kind of reflecting on your career and some of the things that you've accomplished and, and maybe what lies ahead in the space that you'd like to, to go after for the remainder of your career. Because I think it's very inspiring, especially for younger attorneys uh, who are thinking about the, the longevity of their career. Oh, you're asking just those easy questions, huh, Jeff? <laughs> I this is a hard-hitting podcast. It is a hard-hitting podcast. Um, you know, one of the things that I find interesting is, is from a jurisprudential perspective, this is one of the things I think really needs to shake out with respect to Medicaid and Medicaid managed care specifically, is we know that there are rules for governmental entities, you know, things like due process. Uh, retroactive impairment of contracts. There are all sorts of things in the federal constitution, and then you've got the state legislature. You get certain procedural protections when you're dealing with a public entity. But when those public entities take public functions and delegate them to commercial entities, and then impose obligations as a condition of contract, it changes I think from a power dynamic and also from a, uh, a legal perspective, what the source of those obligations are. Even though, it, and it changes those from necessarily being state actions to more actions between private entities bound by contract. And so it's arguable that violating a contract doesn't have the same repercussions um, as the violation of a law. But then at least when you're talking about law regulation, there's usually some sort of public input or public process in the making of those decisions. Whereas in a private healthcare transaction, especially when a health plan has a large amount of market power, there can be, you know, there's sort of, I think, an increasingly uneven playing field. And so I think that's one of the dynamics that's going to need to be worked out eventually with respect to Medicaid managed care specifically. Um, and I'm really interested to follow that through to see where that, where, where that goes, because it really affects so much of what we do in this space, whether it's, you know, thinking through, you know, false claims liability or how overpayments are handled. Uh, it affects a lot of things and really looking at the source of the authority, I think, is really important. So that is a very nerdy jurisprudential issue that I, I spend probably more time than the average person thinking through. <laughs> no, that, that, is, that is fantastic. Uh, cocktail party fodder for me that I'll be able to use next time. Uh, and and I think we could have a an amazing podcast or discussion just on what you you just raised. But but I know we're out of time today. And Felicia, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise, talking about your career. And if anyone is looking for uh, a true expert in this area of law, uh, certainly Felicia is it. So Felicia, thank you so much. Thank you listeners for for joining us. Uh, and listening to Voices in Health Law, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. And now, a word from our sponsors. The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health.